Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am Megan Reardon Jarvis, your host. I am ecstatic today because I get to sit down not just with one guest, but two guests, Brady Hansen and Pam Blair, the authors of this incredible book, The Long Grief Journey. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Megan. We've just been talking about locations. You all are in beautiful Vermont. I'm in D.C., beautiful weather that is um, settling us in. And now we're going to talk about all the heavy and the hard stuff about grief and loss. You already know, but I usually start the podcast asking what brings you into the world of grief and loss. If you guys want to morph that or add to it as you're answering that question, and also what brought you to write this book, I would love for you to jump in and introduce our, our audience to both of you. Pam, do you want to go first? Very simply, the first book, I wasn't ready to say goodbye, was launched out of my brain with a co- another co-author, another wonderful co-author who was a journal who was a journalist, and I did the research. Um, it launched me, but it was because of George, my former husband who died. And it was extremely traumatic. And I didn't know what to do with my life, with my mind, with everything was falling apart. But uh, about a year later, I got this opportunity, I guess you'd call it, yes, to write I wasn't ready to say goodbye. And then that was launched into the stratosphere because of 9-11. And so that's began my writing career was the death of my former husband. And the long grief journey came about because I realized that here I am many years later, I would say 30 to 40 years later after his death. And it still tickles my head, not in a good way, It bothers me that it shows up sometimes. And I decided that I can't be the only one having a long grief journey, that it's 30, 40 years later. And and, and I've had to work through a lot of the mental health associated drama associated with that first loss. So yeah, that's what brought me in. And then when I met Brady, I knew I wanted to write with her. I just love her. She's so intelligent. Brady, I'm going to have you answer the same question, but before I do, I just, Pam, I just really appreciate the, just you saying that alone is educational and shifts maybe a little bit. People who are listening, they get to have a deep breath. They get to take a deep breath because it's the long grief journey, right? That you are saying from my experience, my lived experience, Mm -hmm. it's still going on, still exists. So all the the people are waiting for it to stop or us to be better, you're telling them that's not how it goes. Yes, Megan, and the work that both Brady and I have done with people over the years who are grieving has has really informed this piece of work. Yeah. yeah. Brady, tell us how you step into this space. Wow. My mom died very suddenly and pr- pretty traumatically in 2017. And I just was absolutely blown apart. And, and I think, you know, there's a lot to say about that first year of those first two years. I, what I can say is that it was nothing like, I, I don't know what I expected, but what I actually felt was so big and I was so not myself, whatever that meant for, for a long time. And I vividly remember it was the spring of like when the lockdown COVID lockdown started Um, and that, and it was like, 
right around then I started to feel like a tickle of, I remember where I was standing in my house. I was like, I feel like myself is coming back online a little, like I could recognize a little bit of, of a familiar feeling. And I was like, huh, that's cool. Interesting. Interesting that I felt it because that's kind of how not connect, not familiar. I felt to myself for a, a long time. And then some, sometime after that, Pam and I met for a Zoom lunch because we that's how we had to meet. Yeah, yeah. And we were just talking and I must, I think I mentioned that to you, Pam, that I was, that I had had that experience or, and we were talking about what are we writing and what are we working on? And then Pam asked me, would I be interested in writing a book with her about long, the long grief journey about, and about just what that looks like and what that means. And it was an automatic yes. Yeah. Um, I feel like I had been working as a psychologist for years. Nothing trained me as for grief work as much as actually living through grief did. I know. I, yeah. So that's how, that's how that, how I came to be here and getting to write a book with Pam. So I think there's something, and this is also part of my story. I think there's something so powerful about being in the field and saying things like I was completely undone by my loss. Because what I always say on this podcast is, look, I've got like multiple master's degrees, decades in the field, so many expensive and comprehensive trainings. And I ended up checking myself into an inpatient facility after my mom died and would never have guessed that. And also didn't even know it wasn't just because my mom and I loved each other so much. There was so much in it. And the thing that you just said about you didn't feel like yourself Part of my profound isolation that happened really quickly was I didn't know how to be in front of other people. I was so not myself. I was so self-conscious in a way I had never been. It wasn't like being 13 when I was wearing like a too tight pants or something. It was, I was so not like myself that I could not tolerate people looking at me as though I was. And so it was easier to be by myself. I hear this. In my group, I, I run a regular uh, support group for people who are grieving. I hear all kinds of stories, but I do hear this one, Meg, that that you're talking about. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's got to be in in the world. In that's public. literally what I said over and over again. Is I don't know who to be. I don't know how to be. I was like, and, oh, and you you're forever changed. By I'm grief. never gonna do that. Grief well, does change you forever. Forever. And I, again, so I want to jump into the book because I'm, first of all, I'm like personally and professionally grateful for this book. I know it had to have been a bear at times because you guys, this is a very packed suitcase. You get so much clinical information in there. You tell us personal stories. You give us exercises to do. It's just, it it really does feel like decades worth of clinical experience and, and personal knowledge really put on a platter for us. Thank to- you for that. Thank you very much. Yeah. I really appreciate it. One thing that I said to you guys right off camera, the thing I really want to jump into because I feel like when I was devouring this book, I was like, wow, they are doing something. They're on a razor's edge here. That's really hard. I haven't seen other people do it quite as well. And I think it gets glossed over a lot. I want to talk about the difference between grief and depression. I think this is something that you jump right into here and you give us 
like a flashlight. So would you guys be willing to open that up a little bit? What is the difference? How come we don't just say, well, you know, Megan's mother died and she's really depressed about it. It's, it's been interesting to track that and to track the conversation around it. I'm not, I'm not like super into tracking all of the ins and outs of the DSM. So that's not, I have to use it professionally, obviously. What I started to really notice depression as a whole, I like the way the writers who've been researching this talk about it and started to really distinguish it, which was that when we're struggling with depression, it's more of a global sense of our, our, our sense of comfort. If we're feeling like despair if we're feeling like it's difficult to be alive it tends to be more broad it's yeah. and it's more about self it's more self-attacking right it's broad in that it, it crosses settings but it's also a, a personal i'm not good enough i'm struggling so much it's itself with grief thoughts of not wanting to be alive anymore often have much more to do with wanting to be with the person that we've lost. So that's one extremely important distinguishing feature of in terms of why don't we want to be alive? One has to do with such intense longing for who we've lost. And one has to do more with our experience of being a person on the planet, right? So that's just teasing those things is super important. And, and the focus on longing, I think that it's so important to pull apart also just the idea that oftentimes people are struggling so much in life because they, after the loss of a loved one, because they're longing for the person that they miss. And it's not necessarily that they're not wanting to do other things or not wanting to go to work or be whatever, but that's not where the focus is. And so- both experiences are extremely painful, but if you throw everybody into one pool where you're just missing so much of the story. So people I've, I've worked with a lot of people who come saying I'm depressed. I've been depressed for years. And after a while of working together, you find out, wait, you lost someone. Oh, I lost that person 10 years ago. I'm not still grieving. Hold the phone. Let's just peel this back a little bit. So in terms of those differences, those I think are the really big ones. And it doesn't mean that they don't interact with each other, right? Right. Like people. So if you're, if you struggle with depression or anxiety and then have a loss or experience a loss, then chances are your, your experience of depression, anxiety is going to be certainly impacted or that maybe people have been managing that to some extent pretty well. And then there's a loss and then all of a sudden, oh, actually there's something. So it doesn't mean there's not ever overlap. I think the danger always is in throwing everybody into the, you're depressed pool, you're anxious pool, and all this other landscape is missed. And people don't actually have the experience then to do really concrete and focused work on the heartbreak. I want to know, Pam, do you have anything you want to add to it? The longing piece can trigger, I believe, a depressive response. 
going to bed for a day and or three days or whatever and crying uncontrollably. So that longing and that outward reaching for the loved one, it can look a lot like depression. And I understand why clinicians have a difficult time teasing it apart. And Brady and I did the best we could in this book to to bring that forward, at least for discussion anyway, if not for resolve. Part of the reason, thank you both for that. And, and Brady, I think you did really describe it well. I mean, I, I use lots of metaphors to, to help myself think about it, but the but to me, it almost like depression feels more like global warming, yeah. and grief is more like a, a hurricane. I am you react to a hurricane differently than you would the everyday challenges of global warming. Is the hurricane on account of global? Maybe. But or do they interact with each other? But I do really think the idea of explaining that depression is more like a, a state of who I am and that grief is a reaction to a thing that happened to me. You then can be depressed. And maybe when you think about depression being like a systemic response in order to help you almost navigate the world, I always think about that depression actually it dulls things because things are hard. It's almost like trying to take care of us. I want to ask about this longing. And if you guys can bear with, this is more, I just want to talk about this. When we're talking about the five stages of grief, which of course the three of us don't talk about because there are not five stages of grief. One of the ways that I concretely know that there are not five stages of grief is that in my grief experiences, I never had any bargaining. So there can't, that can't be a linear truth. And I know that from my own experience, because all the times that I have grieved, there was no bargaining. I just accepted that somebody had died. So if you can bear with the narcissism of, of applying my own experience, I really want to ask about this longing component because my story is that my mother died suddenly. I immediately began to have PTSD symptoms. I had ruminations and I had visions and I'm a trauma therapist trained in trauma. I treat trauma, but I was also having traumatic grief responses to my mother's death. I longing. This word longing does not resonate with me. So I want to know about that. I immediately accepted that my mother died every time I read either the prolonged grief disorder diagnosis or everybody is hanging their hat on the longing for the person. But what are we talking about then if you're not longing for the person? That is not what my experience was. And it is not the experience of most of the people I treat. Most of the people I treat are sad that their person died, have accepted that their person died because they usually don't get to me for about a year because they don't understand that their central nervous system isn't just going to regulate. My experience was much more about dysregulation, much more about not eating, not sleeping, ruminations, but the God, I wish my mother was here. I have that now. I do. There will, will be things that happen and I get the catch in my throat. God, she would have loved this. God. And that shows up as grief. That's longing. That is longing. But in terms of when people talk about, we look at the intensity of longing and that is partly how we describe people who are having trouble with their grief and loss. I treat a lot of people where longing doesn't even really factor. Does that make sense? What maybe I'm it's, saying? Maybe it's the wrong word, Megan. So do you have thoughts about that? What's a better word? What is it that I'm missing? Brady, you look like you have a thought. 
I do. And I don't know. One is I don't think that experience of longing is required um, for a person to be experiencing complicated long-term grief. It's a huge, although we really, we rely heavy. Yes, it definitely, it's definitely a piece. I, when I'm just thinking about people that I've worked with and to some extent, my own experience in terms of what longing looks like on the, like boots on the ground kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah is that there is a deep sense of, I am not comfortable here on this planet without you. Yes. I don't know how to be here without you. You like, and so for some people, this could have a lot to do with attachment that that person was somehow the person who's died was marrying something or was such a, so in in the person's psyche maybe in a way that is different than we we don't all experience that but it's there's a feeling of it's who am I without you yeah is that what that reaching is about and I think that's why it's that's what we're calling longing that's That's the word so okay so I think Pam might be right because to me that that this might just be semantics Because to me, that doesn't feel, I get that we might say that is, I am longing for you. But to me, it feels more like a boat that the navigation system stopped working. So it would be better. Go ahead. What I'm hearing is that it's not a keening. It's not a keening. I've never had that. It's it. Yeah. It's more of a, oh, gee, I miss you very intensely. Also, I think before we get too far into trying to get the right semantics here that we talk something well for two things one you're a trauma person expert and how the the sudden loss of someone actually creates a brain injury where you're flooded with um chemicals that change the brain and the way the brain operates so that's number one uh, i'd like to talk about and number two how we stay connected making an ongoing connection and in the relationship either one of us can talk more about how the brain changes. Yeah. But I would like to get to talking about that. Yeah. Do it. Tell, jump in. I think what you're describing with how you experienced PTSD symptoms and how just, I feel that bodily you're so describing so well, I think just what, how completely shocking and disorienting a loss can be especially sudden loss. I think it can be true also for, I just think the experience of losing someone to death is like running into a wall. And that even if we think we're prepared for it, sometimes the shock of even feeling, I thought I knew this was coming and how, why is this feeling? But getting your nervous system, how hard we have to work with our bodies and our, and ourselves to get thing not to feel like it's going to send us into another, another jolt of fear. It's really, it's, that's why I just think doing regular things like going to the grocery store, doing those, everything is so overstimulating for so long. And I I don't know that the, there's just not enough social balm out there to help people navigate that stuff. Um, It takes a while what you're talking about to get regulated. back into some regulation of the, and it really resides in the chemistry in the brain that's been altered. 
And uh, Megan can probably talk for an hour about that. Yeah. Uh, but and so, you know, it's yeah. where there's like sometimes like distinction with some people are experiencing grief more heavily in one way than another. And then there's overlap sometimes. And sometimes I just think it doubles back on itself too, occasionally where all, you mm -hmm. might go while and then suddenly feel a broken heartedness that feels new and surprising. And I that's call those ambushes. Yeah. Like, I thought I was, oh my God, I'm doing this right now. Like I thought I was okay. So I don't, I didn't mean to go off in terms of what you were bringing up, Pam, but I was just thinking what you were describing Megan and how, yeah, it's a total shock. Something yeah. that happens. It's so part of life, but it's so shocking. It's the reason I asked the question is your book made me wonder if part of what you were describing, which I had never seen described before is that maybe the lack of longing although again maybe it's just semantics is an indicator that you are in more trauma that really your central nervous system is dysregulated because there are lots of pieces of longing that i feel now but when i'm looking at when i'm looking at teaching people the difference and again you guys really touch on this the difference between when someone has experienced a traumatic loss, it's not just that it happens suddenly. It's more, Pam, as you were describing, which is more than the brain can take on. It's altering the brain and, and its ability really to function. And so that's really what I wondered is maybe longing, like, I don't know, curiosity isn't really available to me right now because I'm spending and my clients are spending a good portion of their time trying not to be overstimulated by the sights and sounds and smells of the grocery store, mm -hmm. which is a lot of what we talk about. That the in my first book I wrote about, or maybe I wrote about it in this one too, about uh, a can of Campbell's soup yes. putting me into a whirlwind. I had to leave the supermarket. I was so overwhelmed because that was his favorite soup. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Like a that was an ambush like no other. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that's helped me through the longing, if you want to call it that, or the reaching for or wishing that person were around is staying connected. Yeah. Now, George and I are really good friends. We were when he died so suddenly, and we were co-parenting as a separated couple. And there was a little part of me that thought maybe someday in the far off future, we'll get back together. But yeah. that's the inner child longing. So what, one of the things that's really helped is staying connected to George. And I've, I have fun with him. He gets me parking spaces, especially when my son, when our son is in the car and okay. I need something up close because I'm running on empty. And other ways, when I'm co-parenting my adult children, asking him for advice and just sitting quietly and, and getting some information. Hmm. It's not spoken. It's just, I receive it. So I know that from my own experience and those I've spoken to in my grief, grief group, especially, that connection is vital to moving into a different relationship with your loved one and enjoying it. Mm. And we talk about this on this podcast. We talk about continuing bonds and we talk about the, yes. the notion of transferring a re living relationship into something else, into something. And what I'll say about it is you just described the actual verbing of that really beautifully, because I think for people in early grief, what they sometimes hear is, you know what your mother would say to you 
or you know what George would say. So just pretend that George is here and then pretend that he's alive. And that's not actually what you're talking about. What you're talking about is I know he's not alive, but I'm going to bring George to mind for a moment with this problem that I have. And I'm going to feel the energetic bond and connection. And I think in early grief, it's really when people are in a lot of pain, the concept of that mm-hmm. is difficult. And you just describing it with that gentleness and people can't see this, but a big smile on your face. I think it's really, re- it, to me, it's very helpful to hear how one does that. And Megan, George happens to also show up with signs. Yeah. And his favorite number is 333. And I didn't realize that was his favorite number until for a long time after my son was starring in a musical, I I met George in the theater and we raised our children as theater people. And George was performing a major role in Les Mis, the the lead. And I really wanted to be connected to George um, in that moment. And I kept getting woken up at 3.33 on the clock, the digital clock next to my bed. I thought, what the heck is that all about? I This is annoying. And for three days in a row, it happened. And I decided to look up the meaning online, on Google, of what 333 means. And it's an angel number that means somebody's trying to get in touch. Blew me away. So ever since then, that number shows up on license plates when I need it. Or at the store the last year, when my grandson was sick and I walked into the store to get some ice melter and it was on sale for $3.33. It just shows up in more ridiculous ways than I can mention. So I we could even talk about signs being part of that continuing connection. Or yeah. On, yeah. If That's really beautiful. And again, I'm saying this out loud for, because I know I'm going to get the emails from people who are going to say, I love hearing about signs. I don't get them. Mm -hmm. And so I'm what here, what I'm going to say out loud is when Pam is talking, part of what you hear is that the pain has dropped out, not all of the pain, but the Mm -hmm. acute pain Mm -hmm. that, that our ability to see and receive comfort from the idea that the universe is keeping our loved one around, I believe is compromised when the pain is too high, that, that the pain is actually cushioning us, that we have to do the, that acute pain first. I, I want people to be able to have some hope that what you find is possible for them. And that if they focus on um, stabilizing their pain and, and being in the pain and processing the pain, that You can't really do the thing that you're talking about if it's going to be painful. Why would your body let you believe that the ice melt was a message from George if that meant then you were going to have to go home and cry all day? That we really can only receive those, I think. So I'm just saying that to the people. You can still email me. I still want to hear from you. But I'm just saying. What I sometimes coach people to do is just to open up. Just open up a little bit and see what comes in. Don't be scared. It's not the devil. It's not something unchristian to to imagine that connection or to have that connection. Just stay open. It could happen. But you're right about the intense beginnings of grief. It's hard to stay open sometimes. Yeah. Brady, you and I had a little conversation right before we got started around the ongoing pain 
that people go through and maybe what the expectations are. I would love for us to jump into that a little bit because I think it's really at the heart of the book is the dissonance between what the actual long grief journey is for the people who are experiencing it. And then maybe what our culture insists it is or wants it to be or implies. And then just how that is a secondary loss for us as grievers that we feel a kind of pressure. I know all three of us hear from our clients all the time. I think there's, there must be something wrong with me because I'm still X, Y, and Z in my grief. And our answers are like, no, there's nothing wrong with you. That's normal. And so can you jump in? I know you've been thinking a bit about this. I'd love for us to talk a little bit about it. Yeah. I, I think about this so much in relation to grief. I've thought about it a lot. I think it probably really started because of the pandemic and the, the urge that seemed to be just everywhere to get back to normal in quotes. And I'm like, normal, what? Why would we? Everything is completely outer. And so I've just been like, this is so interesting. We are literally bowing at the altar of getting back to normal. And then I, and I was thinking then more about what is that about? Why can't we let ourselves be changed by things? Like what is there just this like ground zero that we think we're always going to get back to that's, oh, this is like where I'm supposed to be. And this is where I always have to get back to rather than actually let ourselves be consciously as much as we can be conscious about it changed by what we experience. And so I've just been thinking about that. And then conversations, I think I have a lot of thoughts about that, but anyway, one, one person who is really coming to mind as we're talking today, and he was describing to me was years after his loss, but he was describing the it was like basically like a week a week after the death of his loved one and that he was with people in his family who he could not cry in front of because the family did not cry and the way he was described he didn't necessarily use these words but what i mean what he was describing and what i could see in what he was doing with his body is that he literally was having to contort himself yeah. in order not to not to emote and as and I, i've thought about this a lot because and in the book actually we talk about this that i consider this a form of violence like it's like a cultural abuse to not let people to for for people to have to suffer that much And so when I think about long-term, our experience of long-term grief, I think so many of us are not only grieving the loss of our loved one, but we're also suffering from the effects of how we were treated or how we experienced our culture or our family or whatever after we lost our loved one because of how violent that can actually be to the human spirit. It is so not natural. And I just, I don't know what to do about it, except for hold space for it when I'm talking to someone about the multi-layers of pain that they're describing. But I think it's so much more common than we, I I don't know. I think we know that it's common, but I don't know. It just, how can this be? 
<laughs> how can this be what's actually happening for people? And so I, I just think that urge to get back to normal is understandable because nobody wants to feel bad, obvious, but, but that we also need to work with how to be with our loved ones as they're suffering and let them not be how they were and let ourselves just be changed by what we experience because we're changed. We're never going back to how we were before. And I just have to tell a brief story when my to illustrate the, yeah. the process, which is my sister Marilyn, uh, her husband died with six months later of the same exact aneurysm that George had, which is spooky. So the two of us were grieving the sudden loss at the same time. And we both were present when they took off life support. Marilyn ended up going to a psychiatrist because she really felt dis totally disoriented and destroyed. And she asked the psychiatrist, I know that your wife died. I can't remember the name of the psychiatrist. I know that your wife died. How did you get through it? And the psychiatrist leaned back in his chair and said, Marilyn, I went crazy. And that opened up such a wonderful connection between the two of them. Totally. I know that as professionals, we're not supposed to reveal stuff about us, but that moment in time yes. was probably one of the most beautiful moments my sister experienced through this whole time. And again, maybe it gives us room to challenge whether or not we're supposed to reveal the things that put ourselves in the space of offering someone hope because they had a bond and that ended up being an incredible gift to say, no, it was really, it was really that bad. Brady, when you were talking about it, it just, it reminds me, like, I remember during the pandemic watching everyone doing the plank challenge. They were like, oh, I'm going to do, I'm going to have really hard abs and also baking sourdough bread. There was like this weird phenomenon of like bread bakers. And I remember thinking, maybe this is people's fight response. We go into fight and flight in a crisis. Maybe this is the fight response. They're going to make sure that they're productive in some kind of way. But when I work with clients, I end up apologizing. I end up saying, I am sorry that my, like all the people in my field have not made enough room for the truth of the experience, because we actually know the truth of the experience. Like we haven't gotten to the mountaintop with the megaphone to help shift the culture. But I really was hoping that part of what the pandemic was going to do was push all the chess pieces off the board and have us take a different look. Because the truth of the matter is, at least I'm thinking about it from your perspective and then what happens on for the people who come into my office, the people who come into my office are physically ill for the most part. And in fact, believe it, they have migraines and they have digestive tract issues and they have inflammation and they're being diagnosed with things like Hashimoto's and lupus because they go to Christmas the uh -huh. year after their loved one dies and no one says one word to them about what is it like for you? They don't acknowledge, they don't ask, they don't. And the griever is like, I'm not, I'm clearly not supposed to talk about us. They swallow all of every microaggression, every micro grief, they just swallow it, but it has nowhere to go. And so we think when you're talking about it, it sounds like that's disappointing that people have not been able to, but really it's, it is, it's, it is exactly as you're describing. It. It's a violence and it it's creating illness. 
Yes. And the thing that drives me crazy is we know better. We know better. <laughs> and the the beauty of what your book does really is just pointed out so plainly. I don't think there's another another dense clinical story with two people who have such long histories of both treating people and being curious about grief and loss and just say plainly, we expect that you're going to need support. We expect that you're going to be carrying this. Uh, And we expect that you're feeling a little crazy. Right. What's wrong with that for a while if you need to? I want to talk about the cover of the book. I, you raised it up, but I, the first iteration of this cover was the most depressing thing I've ever seen. So the publishers <laughs> send over a cover that has oh, a God. dead leaf on it. A right? dead leaf. Yeah, brown, dead leaf. And then the title, of course, across it. And I said, no, this book is about the journey. And this is supposed to represent the journey, whether it's water or a road. And yeah. that up here is there, there's light coming at the end yeah. of that tunnel. And so I'm awfully glad that they listened to me and, and Brady, that we weren't going to be willing to sell that book if it had that cover. Yeah. Oh. What's funny about that is, and I think maybe because I was closer when we were doing all of that, my mom hadn't died that many years before. Mm-hmm. The dead leaf resonated with me. Was, yeah. I know. Uh, yeah. Remember that? I was like, I get it. Not because the leaf was dying, but because it was going, at least I don't know about what everyone does with their yeah. leaves, but we don't rake ours because, yeah. but also it's good for the ground to leave right. all that. So in my, I saw, I, when I looked at it, I just remember thinking like, oh, we're part of a cycle. Yeah. This whole thing is so deeply cyclic. And, but I think the feeling of that is maybe where I still was, you know, yeah. Where yeah. It resonated personally, that's where you were, yeah, but yeah. I get what you're saying. But what I'm hearing in both of the things is that there has to be an element of hopefulness, right? I mean, this is the thing is that we go through these untenable experiences. We come out changed. And again, in my world, if the only thing that you get from that horrible experience is a life that is less than, then that is the definition of being traumatized. But that is not what most people experience, what most people discover. I have a really good friend who her husband, her brother died. And then six weeks later, her husband died and she was only 26 years old when it happened. And I, every once in a while, I ask her this question, but when you look back, she's 52 now, like when you look back, what do you think you did? Like, how did you survive? What, how could you have done? You didn't know. And what she says was, Megan, I just treaded water, but never in the same place. I would just like tread water over here and tread water over here and tread. And I, and to me, that is the most beautiful definition of surviving and living, right? You need the hopefulness of that will be good enough. If you can just tread water, the river is going to move underneath you. You're going to move a little. Life is going to continue. You're going to be a part of life. I know. Megan, can I read, you mentioned hope twice in what you were just saying. Can I read a very quick? I love it. Thank you for offering. That I wrote for the book called A New Day. And it's, if you, class, if you want to turn to page 288, that's where it is. Beautiful. A new day happens unannounced, begins the unending loss and gain with cries, with pain, 
asking to bend, breaking us open, heartache unspoken, screaming the unanswerable, inviting us, come this way. We walk in darkness toward the light of hope from hopelessness. A new day awaits. Mm. Yeah, but you don't know that in the moment. No, but I think it's really important for the people that are just, a, you know, I what I said a lot is like, I can't see past my own hands. I know there's a world out there, but like I am walking slowly in the dark, trying not to fall. And I am completely consumed with what is in my own hands. I can't think about other people. I can't, but it's really important for folks who can say, my mom died in 2017. I have been living without George this many years and just be a little bit of a lighthouse and say there there are elements to this that not only are survivable, but are not the worst things in the world that actually maybe beautiful things grow out of our lives from that composted tree leaves in the moments of those things. And I do, again, what I wanted to say to you is I think your book has a lot of entry points. I think one of the things that's tricky for grief books in general is it's almost like, who is it for? People ask me, and I'm sure ask you all the time, what's a good grief book? And and here's what I'll say, because I say it all the time. Don't give anybody a book for three months. Please don't give them. They're going to put it down somewhere. Nobody's reading anything. And also don't give them the name of a therapist for three months. Like they're in the water. Just give them towels and water and food and encouragement. After that, being able to find a book that has multiple entry points that you can pick up and it will talk to you. One of the beautiful things about your book is that there are these bold lines that sort of are ask questions and you can almost pick it up and skim through and then land on one that's relevant to you. And I think that is the strength of, again, clinicians who have some lots of experience, but also understand that we can say a lot of things, but maybe only 12% of what's in here is going to be what you need. And that's okay. We don't need you to have the whole history of prolonged grief disorder in the DSM. We're here to give you a nugget that feels soothing and hopeful. And that is the thing that I feel so much about the book is that it is a wildly hopeful book with multiple entry points for people. And God, there's just so much in here. There's You've rolled the socks up and stuck them in the shoes to make sure that we get as much <laughs> as possible. And I, it really is quite a feat. It really is just a, a really gorgeous gorgeous text. What's up next for both of you? Are you seeing your patients private practice? Are you on a book tour? Are you speaking? And if people want to find you, what's the best way to do that? I'll start I because I'm retired and I'm well, enjoying. Good job, Pam. <laughs> and because I also write books for women on aging, I'm writing one now called An Evolving Woman, which has to do with age when we get into our late 60s, 70s, and some of the joys and the things that you're going to bump into. So An Evolving Woman, I haven't sold it yet, although I was rejected once by my uh, editor, and she does that. Yeah. She actually rejected the long grief journey <laughs> at one point. Great. And I had to say to her, read a little more. Would yeah. Editors are interesting people. And I love her high. Uh, high <laughs> she holds us to a high standard. Pull out to her. And then I'm, I've also written a novel that I'm trying to get published. And I don't want to self-publish because I like working with, I don't know, 
I just book like, people. You like doing the, you like connecting with the people that are doing the books. You're an evolving woman. That sounds again, like another book inside a field that needs that kind of a book. So that's I, what I'm doing these days is working yeah. on two books at the same time. It's a little bit nuts and I'll call it crazy. If, if I, can. I was going to say, it doesn't sound like retirement. It sounds like you just changed jobs, but yes, I did. I'm grateful to know that's what you're doing. And Brady, how about for you? So I still, I'm working in private practice part-time. And then I also, I have, I wear a few different hats. I also work at the Shelburne Craft School, their fiber program. And something that I'm pretty excited about is the director at that school is, took an interest in the work that I do in private practice using weaving and, and fiber art to help people on their life journey. Sometimes it's to do with grief. Sometimes it's to do with other things. And we've been running classes there that are called weaving your story oh and my. So coming in and it's just awesome. We get, I get to teach weaving, but we're, it's all centered around using the experience of weaving and using this product that you make to help process whatever it is that you're working out in your life. So I'm doing that. Maybe that's a book I want you to write. I want you well, to write. I'm, I'm also working on that. I'm working on a book that's that I'm, I'd love to be able to just really talk about how to use fiber art and our hands to help us metabolize the different things that we go through, through the lifespan. But that's, that's I'm chipping away at that. That's like behind the scenes at the moment, but it's wonderful work. That's what that I'm up to. the Shelburne Craft School. And, the, and people who are listening can go online and look that up and see all the- We'll amazing. put it in the show notes also. That is just, I'm always so grateful for these conversations. I'm always so grateful to connect to people that are in this work, to hear there's always a personal story, but also what the ING, the verbing of your own sort of processing is. My sister's a printmaker. There's a lot of art in my family. And a lot of what I encourage- when I'm teaching grief practice with clients is whatever instinctively makes sense to you. And, and so much comes back to people using their hands, people yes. cooking, cleaning, gardening, art of all kinds. I wouldn't be surprised if we learned neuroscience from neuroscience down the road, that there's something about the left. Well, there is, there's also, there yeah. is already research on that. Yeah. yeah. You, you can yeah. find it. I, I think the research focused on knitting. But real okay, you're giving me something to go look up. Like I have can, time for that. And I also want to mention my website, which is yeah. uh, com. And there's a lot of info on me and it's maybe boring to your listeners, but it's, you can find well, out. They'll come there. We'll put it all in the show notes so that people have all that. Yeah. Brady. Forgot about that. I have one of those too. Yep. <laughs> so, like, oh yeah. A website. If people there's, and there's a bit of information on that site about the healing aspects of handcrafting for anybody who's interested in that it's called healinghandcrafting.com. Um, yeah. There's good stuff out there around that. You guys have been a complete delight to talk to. Thank you so Thank much you. for this beautiful book. Thanks Thank for the you. opportunity. So Thank great you. meeting you both and good luck in all things. Thank Take you so good much. Take care. Okay, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.